2: Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And on this episode, we're joined by Dr. Roderick Land. He's a friend of mine. He's an ordained minister who also holds a Ph.D. from the University of Illinois, my alma mater, uh, in educational policy with an emphasis on critical race theory and sociology. He's also done extensive research on social justice, racial attitudes, and race relations in America. And we both served uh, on the Utah Martin Luther King Human Rights Commission. He was chair of that commission during that time. And uh, Roderick, thanks for joining us today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. So this was Amy's idea. So I'm going to let Amy kind of introduce and explain what's going on here.
3: So yesterday was the uh, verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder case. um, And he was found guilty on all three counts. And Jason wrote a very uh, moving piece um, that sort of took us inside his own thought processes. And then he did a radio interview and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if he had a discussion with some other black men about what yesterday afternoon and really the last year has been like. Um, And so I guess I would start with you, Roderick. How did you find out about the verdict yesterday and what were your initial thoughts?
4: Um, Well, I was actually glued to my television watching CNN as the verdict was being read. And so, uh, well, i should just say my computer, I had it up on my, one of my screens. But nevertheless, as I was um, listening to um, the verdict being read, there was a huge, tremendous um, amount of anxiety because I can't help but to think about the previous times where um, there has been opportunities where police were charged with certain things, which I would say it's been an anomaly as a late, to be honest with you. But you still have uh, that hope but yet anxiety about what the verdict will be. And so what's interesting is that um, the amount of anxiety and stress that that has caused, not just for me, but I would even dare to say many of Black Americans within this country because of what has been um, what has happened uh, at the hands of law enforcement as it relates to um, unarmed Black men being murdered and killed on the streets.
2: And women, and so, by the way.
4: And women, for that matter, yes, uh, correct, right? And so as we think about the history of this, um, you bring all that to bear in that moment when that verdict is being read. And so when they uh, uh, shared the fact that he was guilty on all the charges, it was a sigh of relief for that moment, but it still does not erase the history of not just law enforcement, but many people who have killed um, black and brown
2: bodies in getting off.
3: So Jason, what, you were watching it live also, right? Were you in the newsroom? No, Trying no, I
2: was, at, I was in my home office and um i was watching it like you said uh, at first i had it on my television <laughs> on 42 inches of a uh, of a screen and then i thought to myself you know what i'll just watch it on the little screen so because I, I was writing the piece uh, it was as i was doing that and you know i'm like him i, I had all this anxiety but I, as i was watching it and i happened to be watching mine on uh nbc news and what what struck me was during their discussion they have all these experts right these legal experts and when they found out that they came back in a relatively short time, this one lady who was, uh, they were speaking of, she'd been a previous prosecutor in, in some state, she mentioned that even though she didn't want to put the car before the horse, she thought that this short time meant that it's, the chances were good that it was going to be uh, a guilty verdict. And I thought to myself, there's, there's this part of me that gets a little excited, you know, because I just want to see justice done. I just, I I needed to see the right thing happen here. And as I kind of got it approached, it took longer than they thought. So we, we waited a little longer and then they went to these interviews and then finally the time came when they went into uh, the courtroom and uh, the judge kind of convened everything and, and got it going. And in a relatively short time, they started reading out uh, those verdicts. And like Rod said, I, <laughs> you're just relieved. I don't know if I was happy. I was, I was glad the right thing was done. But uh, you know there's nothing happy about watching a man's life go down the tubes. Even though he deserved to be in prison, there's still part of me that is sad for him. Even he he brought this on himself, but his family is now having to live with that for the rest of their lives. He has to go to prison, uh, and George Floyd's not coming back. All of that for nothing, for I mean, just uh, an amount of inhumanity and and disdain for life. Just the, the worst moment of his life, I I, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I hope it was, because if he did anything worse than that, I'm afraid. It it was, I was glad to see it happen, but I was really sad that it, all of this transpired in the first place. It it was a, kind of a, a heavy weight lifted, but it was still pretty heavy anyway. Let me ask there's, you. There's,
3: I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Roderick.
4: No, I'm sorry. Uh, but I was gonna say, but I mean, to the point that's being made, um, I guess maybe implicit within this conversation is you have to think about where we are as a nation, right? where you have an entire community of people who are glued, and I, would, I wouldn't just say black folks, I would say America period, mm-hmm. where they're glued to a TV, wondering whether or not someone who, was, um, who has been, who was on trial for murder, and the whole world seen this, whether or not this verdict would come out guilty or not. And I would say that speaks to the fact that we are in a very precarious uh, situation where we don't know these things. And I think it speaks to the value of Black life. Because had this been, I would argue, again, had this been any uh, anybody else, this would not have even been a situation or a case to begin with. There would not have been as much press, but for the simple fact that it took a, a video, all this evidence that was put before the court and the jury and people were still holding their breaths to figure out Mm. whether or not this guy would be convicted or not. That That says, that speaks volumes to where we are as a country.
3: Well, and I guess that, that brings me to my, the question I have for both of you, which is I heard a lot of discussion yesterday about this being a minimal bar, right? Like the system functioned as it should yesterday. And everyone was so relieved or celebratory and, um, and then I heard people saying, this isn't justice, this is accountability. And I wondered if you had some thoughts on, you know, is this justice? Is this accountability? Is it some combination? Um, it, you know, what is it going to take to restore faith in the system as a whole?
2: I would say that it, it's both. It is justice and accountability, right? Because justice is served because the system worked in a way as supposed to a man who murdered another human being was found guilty of doing that. And, and and it's indisputable, as far as I can tell. I mean, somebody might argue otherwise, but I, I think they would be pretty hard-pressed to make their case be, uh, you know, logical and legitimate. With regard to, you know, where, how do we prevent this from happening over and over again? And and I said this yesterday uh, during one of the uh, interviews I did on radio, is that you have to—it starts with the police. And I know it's a heavy burden for them, but— If they change the way they interact with the public, particularly as it relates to minorities, then they can help resolve a lot of their own issues. They have this feeling of disdain and disrespect. They feel they're getting from the public. And, you know, the police have this kind of attitude like people don't respect police like they used to. Well, they didn't used to respect them as much, at least in the minority communities. They feared them. And fear and respect are two big big differences. And one of which is you, you may show deference but you don't feel deference. And as we move on, you know, our society is going to the point where we want to be able to speak up and and stand up for ourselves. And I think that um, if the police are able to change their tactics, they can resolve a lot of their own issues uh, going forward. And before we, uh, I I want to let Rod get his point in here, but we're kind of running short on time. I think uh, one of the things I want to hear from him as a person who's kind of observed this and and studied this in his research is, you know, what, what we're, Where does he see us right now, and and how does he see moving forward that we can avoid situations like this? Uh, I'm speaking today with uh, Dr. Roderick Land, who is an ordained minister and also a Ph.D., and his uh, work is in educational policy on uh, critical race theory and sociology, and he's going to bring a lot of intellect to this conversation. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson and Jason Lee, speaking today with Dr. Roderick Land, a friend of mine who's an ordained minister and also uh, he has a doctorate in uh, educational policy, focusing on critical race theory and sociology. And Rod, you know, I I got a chance to answer the one question Amy uh, posed to us about is is the verdict, a case, uh, the guilty verdict against uh, Derek Chauvin, is that uh, an example of accountability and or justice? And, and what are your thoughts on that, and, and how does it uh, play out, you know, as we look in uh, as in the larger social context for our society?
4: I would say that it's both. It's both justice and accountability. But then also I would say that there's a third component to it as well, and I would say it's it was a sacrifice, right? I think a lot of people argue that, yeah, the justice system worked well on yesterday when the verdict was read. But then also you have to think about it from the context, if you think about it uh, from dare I say, a white supremacist perspective where it does, I would argue, rule our society in the sense that, yeah, you had Derek Chauvin, a white male who murdered um, um, George for the black male. And if you understand how this stuff works, people say that George may have sacrificed his life. But I would also argue that um, Chauvin was a sacrificial lamb to maintain status quo, because there was nowhere in the world that with the world watching, if they would have Found him not guilty. The world would have been on fire. So, in in some regards, yes, justice was served. But there was also, I would argue, an interest convergence that that took place as well. In the sense that, it, if they did not find him guilty, then again, not just the world, but more specifically, America would have been on fire. So they had to. And so, do you? Do question, you
3: let me interrupt you though and ask yeah. you: Do you really think the jury considered that?
4: um i don't know i don't I don't know the minds of the jury to be honest with you I really don't and i'm I'm yeah. hopeful that they they did look at the evidence for sure and made their decisions on that
2: but I also but, think like he makes a point if I shudder to think what would have happened if he would have got well if he'd have been guilty of some of them i, I think there would have still been some unrest but it, it wouldn't be bad bad but if he'd have been found not guilty on all of them. I, I can't even imagine what today would be like, but I so think it's point, I'm sorry.
3: Yeah. I was just going to say, I think though, Roderick, your point is better taken with the prosecution. I think that the prosecutor has probably said, this is the case that we can, that we can, that we can win, right? Like the, this is the guy we can sacrifice. I mean, there's no, most cops will even tell you there's no admiration or love or affection for Derek Chauvin and what he did there so right. I think when you'll even get police officers criticizing him then maybe mm-hmm. you're right that he is the sacrificial one but I think that's where it's the same because I look at some of these other cases that could have been prosecuted right mm-hmm. and they were not right. um, they were deemed justifiable. those are prosecutor prosecutor's decisions whereas I think the jury is just the regular people like us and they're just listening to what was brought to them and you know, they were a racially diverse jury, which is unusual. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 I hesitate. To, I don't know for sure. But obviously, I'm, we may see an interview with them down the road. But I just wondered where you thought that sacrifice of Chauvin began. Was it with the police union? Was it with the prosecutors? You know, that kind of decision, I guess.
4: And I would say, I mean, to the point that you're making, Amy, I don't disagree with that whatsoever. And I would say it's not just on the jury for that, for that to happen, right? To your point, again, the prosecution did have to bring the case. And I would even say to, to the point of the attorney general and, and the, uh, the, the local government within, within Minnesota also had to bring the case. So, yeah, I think it started from the top. And when they saw how uh, egregious this act was, they had to distance themselves. And in that regards, they had to put uh, Chauvin on the island and sacrifice him. Because you have too many cases within America where there was videotapes of of cops uh, killing unarmed black men. I mean, going back as early, if if you think about the Rodney King case. 1992. That was on film and nobody was found guilty, right? So at what point do you have to, at what point do you say um, enough is enough, right? So from Rodney King to George Floyd, to the latest one that happened the day that the verdict was being uh,
2: uh, read. When is enough enough? So in a case like this, I mean, and we I, I feel like you say it, even, despite the fact that even when the, the case was going on in Minnesota, they right. had uh, a young man killed, a 20 year old uh, Wright, uh, Duante Wright. Yes. I think is his name. And I, I find it just, you know, appalling that even in a place nearby where they the police still haven't learned how not to kill people. And and I I'm just really, I don't know. I'm dismayed by that. I I can't understand how the first thing they think of is killing people. I mean, what, what, what is that? I I I want to ask somebody, but I, unfortunately, there's no police gonna uh, answer that question for me.
3: But but Jason, that leads to the next question that you sort of asked at the end of the uh, first segment, and that is, where do we go from here? Like, how does it get better?
4: Um. So. I have my own personal theories about that. And well, since I guess it is personal because you're asking me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, it's like, I'll start out with my concern first. And I think I shared this with Jason uh, yesterday. My concern is this. I mean, it's, it's, If we think about this case in particular, and we would say that, yes, justice was served on, on yesterday. Does this mean that this is a catalyst for us to move forward? Or does this be an impediment for us to make or, to, uh, or a way for us to maintain status quo? And the reason why I say that is because if you think about in 2008, when we elected um, Obama as the first black president of of the United States, there was immediately this push towards us having a post-racial society, as if all ills of racism had been cured once he was elected. And that was the furthest from the truth. So now we have this case in 2021, uh, where it was very clear and cut for me, right? Mm-hmm. Where a person was um, convicted, Chauvin was convicted. Um, for the murder of George Floyd. And we understand where we are in terms of race relations in this country right now. So the question then becomes, does this case in and of itself become that catalyst for police and criminal justice reform? Or do we say, yeah, justice is served, the justice system worked, so why must we change anything? That's the part that I'm fearful about. But if we were to take the momentum of the moment and really lean into it, then we would have to have not just more conversations, but ha- back those conversations up with strategic action. And I think that's where we have to go next. And with it's going to take action. Okay. not just um, again, not just the black and brown community, but America has to lean into all this, right? Our uh, policymakers have to lean into all this. The president and the VP has to lean into this, in which they have done. So if we we're serious about this criminal justice reform,
2: now is the time. You know, when I look at this, the one thing I think of is like you say, if, if you want this reform, this is a time when uh police themselves, they again they have a chance to help themselves and use this as the example to say, we don't want this to happen anymore. But unfortunately, like you just said, right, you know, uh the young lady's name was uh Makia Bryant, she was sixteen years old. She supposedly had a knife. I mean, uh, they, they're still doing an investigation on this, but there was some altercation that police were called to, and uh, she, she was shot and killed. So we're going to find out how that plays out. We, we we really don't know at this point. But even in uh, in light of what happened with Chauvin and, and uh, George Floyd, we still see these incidents happen. Incidents that are at least questionable. That is not to say that all of them, some of them are not justified. Of course, that there, there are those two. But we do see so many that are questionable that I, I'm hoping, like you just said, that the police take this opportunity to reevaluate how they interact or how they come to situations and how they may seek to resolve them, rather than using deadly force as what seems to be, uh, a, if it's not the first thing they do, it's one of the first things they do, and I, I find that to be uh, quite troubling. We're speaking today with uh, Dr. Roderick Land, talking about kind of the, uh, the aftermath of the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict uh, in Minnesota, and. What uh, our society may look like as it relates to police and how they interact with us, the society, particularly as it relates to minorities. And hopefully, we can, uh, you know, maybe hash out some answers here. Uh, She's Amy, I'm Jason, this is Voices of Reason. We are back again with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Dr. Roger Gland, who is a, a college professor. Uh, he is a, his doctorate is in educational policy uh, with an emphasis on critical race theory and sociology. And uh, Amy, you had a couple of questions you want to kind of – she is talking to us today about what yeah. happened in the aftermath of Derek Chauvin's uh, guilty verdict. And we're kind of the interviewees.
3: Yes, yes. You are my I get to ask you all the questions <laughs> that everybody else wants to ask. So, sure. I had this question come up yesterday and I'm wondering how do you show white people the depth, the reality of the problems facing black America, black and brown Americans um without continuing what I feel is this you know, parade of black suffering. I feel like we've become so um accustomed now that it's, you know, it's traumatizing to, to black and brown people, but, um, I still think there are people who don't get it. So I see the need to show the reality of the situation in a really raw and, and, you know, I guess real way. But I also struggle with this idea of continuing to use black suffering as a method of persuasion and as, uh, I think, as a form of entertainment. And I just wondered if you had some thoughts on that.
4: Uh, yeah, I can take that. Um, <laughs> so this idea of black suffering um, and that being paraded around whatever medium that you can imagine, right? And this maybe a source of entertainment it has is not a new thing, right? If you go back to the days of, of lynching, where, uh, where you would actually have uh, lynch mobs bring black bodies into the middle of the square and folks used to have picnics around the lynching of black bodies, right? As crazy as that sounds, this is nothing new. So I would say that the suffering that we see within the media in the different forms is just another way of showing how black folks have been lynched um, for, uh, for generations, right? It's nothing new to this, right? And so to your question, well, how do we begin to shift the minds of people, or more specifically, our, our white, our white friends and brothers and sisters, um, to be more compassionate. And my response that would be first, you have to change their heart, right? For, for, because you have to recognize the fact that mentally, it's the same kind of pathology that we had during slavery about what the worth of a black life was, or, or a black body is worth, right? And so you see nothing different in 2021, or even within the past year, the past decade, the past couple of decades, where you've had all these officer-involved shootings and very little has been done to it. Yes, Black folks have been suffering at the hands of not just, uh, I would say, our our law enforcement agencies, but every institution within our American society. It's not as if, again, if you think about um, infant mortality rates, life expectancy rates, right, economic empowerment. All education, all those things are uh, a part of a larger system that has I would argue has maintained the oppression of black and brown bodies in this country since the inception of America, or what we can call simply systemic racism right and so again, to change the mindset, you have to get at, you have to somehow get at the hearts and somehow humanize black and brown bodies, but until well, that if- happens that it will, it, nothing will change.
3: And, and I, I think that's sort of the argument people and I myself have made in showing, you know, people struggling. I did a story last year, Jason Knows, on black mothers and their worries for their children in the mm-hmm. wake of the George Floyd killing. And, um, I, you know, I didn't feel like that was parading their suffering, but definitely I, I meant to take white women and white men into that reality this is what it's like. And this is the, this is the trauma that exists for them in this country. But I have come to wonder sometimes where, where's that line being crossed? Because I do, and I've had this, Jason and I had this incident where I tried to show him a video. He didn't want to watch it. I kept trying to talk him into it. And he had kind of a little bit of a breakdown and (laughs) said to me, I can't watch another man, black man get abused by the cops. It's too traumatic. And it was a moment for me to say, I'm consuming this different than him. What's happening here? And why am I wanting to watch every single one of these videos? And he's not wanting to watch every single one of these videos. And is it softening my heart or is it, you know, like you say, appealing to this, This yeah, to to this age old thing of this is entertainment. This is, it's like watching the car wreck, right? At at one of these car races, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. everyone wants to see the crash. Um, I don't know. Are we softening hearts by showing these videos and by seeing these moms cry for their children? And I don't know. Help me with that.
4: And I would say, in general, and I don't want to, I don't want to generalize this. I'll say it that way, right? Because again, I think it's different for every individual. Because I think to the point that you're making, Amy, for you it may be softening your heart, right, to, to be able to see these people as humans, as your brothers and sisters, right? But at the same time. You do have folks who just are just seeing this as pure entertainment, and again, how you consume it will be very different because you have no attachment to these individuals. And, it's, and even though Jason and I may not have attachments uh, to these men who've been murdered um, in terms of like a, a family line, but they we are akin to each other because of the color of our skin, right? That's the link, and and that we have a shared history in that regards as it relates to our engagement with various institutions within the society. And so again, it's like, as as we think about um, how we view or look at uh, these tragedies, these very traumatic experiences of of life and death, a lot of times, again, how we consume things may be different based upon how we have um, either been socialized or have some kind of very deep connection with those individuals through race, gender, sexual orientation, or whatever the case may be.
2: And I think uh, I'm going to add to that uh, life experience, right? So I wrote oh, in my piece uh, that I wrote for the, uh, for the Deseret News uh, yesterday in that I can see myself in George Floyd. The reason I can't watch that video anymore is because that's me, potentially, mm-hmm. under that guy's knee. And all I, all I could think of was I want to kill this guy. I mean, however, but I, I just know, I remember thinking of him calling for his, George Floyd calling for his mother, his dead mother. And just you know asking for some help and and nobody was helping him no not a soul and, and and in some way, the lady who took the young lady who took the video helped, but you know literally nobody helped and uh, and the police officer who was supposed to be there to help him was literally taking his life and and had no uh regard for his humanity whatsoever so when when I look at this and I, I suggest that the reason it means something so much more to me than it may to others. <clears throat> but like I said, to Rod or somebody else of color is because we can see ourselves. We can put ourselves in, 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 the, in that person's situation and know that it could really be our, our situation. But if you're of the majority, if you're white, that's I mean, that's a far fetched notion to you. And so it's 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 very difficult. And so often people sympathize with people, but rarely do they empathize with them. They don't want to get into the foxhole with them. They just want to say, man, that's a tough spot to be in. But in, in, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, glad that could never be me. That's what we got to get past. We got to get people to get in the foxhole with us. I don't, I don't want your sympathy. I'm, I am so done with sympathy. I need you to say, you know what? I am as outraged as you are, and I'm going to do just as much as I can uh, uh, to, to get out there in front and be the catalyst for change. Those are the people that are your true allies, and we just need more of those. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Roger Gland and uh, hopefully, maybe again, come up with some answers and, and enlighten folks as to how we can all as a society and as a community do more to help prevent more of these tragedies. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee, speaking today with Dr. Roderick Land, who is a uh, Ph.D., a doctorate, which I could never do. I got a master's. I thought that was more than enough. He, on the other hand, just apparently had a lot of time on his hands and uh, <laughs> and wanted to get way more education than all the rest of us want to uh, think about. And who emphasizes his uh, his uh, I guess his research on educational policy and uh, critical race theory and sociology. And we were also uh, co-members of the uh, Utah Martin Luther King Human Rights Commission and he also chaired during the time that I was on there with him. So uh, Rod, Amy had a question for both of us again.
3: Yeah, for both of you, I mean, I think there's been a lot of discussion about where we go from here and how do we make things better. And I've heard a a ton of talk about we need to teach civics and history, which is a a little bit hilarious. Who gets to decide what civics and history we teach? Because we already teach those things, right? Um, and then, and, but I guess get
2: to decide.
3: Yeah. But I guess the, the big question I see is I don't see things getting any better until we deal with the fear that is causing these confrontations to spiral out of control. And I understand absolutely why, um, a police officer might be nervous, but I also understand why a black man or a black woman might feel like their life, like they have to fight for their life, you know, in a situation that maybe, maybe hasn't gotten, gotten bad it will get worse if they fight right if they resist so i just i guess how do we get to a better place and is it is this something that you know policymakers can address or is this something like jason said that has to come from policing or communities because for me i feel like the fear is at 10 on both sides and i don't know how it gets better
4: i mean, yeah i would say that um I don't know if policymakers can make this difference, right? Because I think what's at the crux of this is just pure, genuine relationship, right? And I think proximity has something to do with that. And I think it's not just on law enforcement, but also on the community as well. And the question that becomes who takes that first step or can we take that first step together? Law enforcement and community and come towards each other and have more genuine, authentic engagement beyond just the idea of when you see or engage law enforcement is because there's some kind of perceived infraction but how do we begin to have people who are living in our communities um, being on 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 uh, the force themselves as opposed to folks who are outside of our communities and i know that law enforcement has done some work around that to um, to try to incentivize their officers to live in the communities that they're policing but I would even argue that even the notion of, or the idea or the concept of policing could be somewhat problematic, right? So, again, if we can't begin to have better relationships between our, our law enforcement agents and our communities that in which they're serving, then that fear will continue to be heightened because there has not been any other thing to take its place. So I think we have to begin to have, again, more community engagement by law enforcement, but at the same time, community members being um, receptive of that engagement.
2: I would agree wholeheartedly with that. You know, the idea is that, again, I I still would suggest that it takes the police to make the effort first because they're the ones who initiate most of these confrontations or or at least interactions before they become confrontations. And they can uh, learn de-escalation. They can learn how Mm -hmm. to uh, treat people in the way they would want to be treated. That's Literally, this is is, uh, the golden rule, right? If, if you treat people with respect, they'll give that back to you, generally speaking. If you are kind when you walk up to somebody or uh, behave like a gentleman or, or a lady then, and, and then treat them in that same way. If you come up and say, ma'am, may I speak to, with you for a second? We got an issue we'd like to uh, kind of hash out here. We don't know what's going on and we, we're hoping that you can help us. That's a whole lot better than, hey, get on your knees or sit down over there, uh, turn around, let me pat you. Down. All of those things create animosity. They create uh, hard feelings. And they are dehumanizing to those you are interacting with, and how do you why would you expect them to be cooperative with you if you treat them like that and the notion you know it since we since police by the way that we uh in the way we police today was all born out of slave uh, catchers so the the whole idea was catch them and bring them back so i can uh, I can either uh enslave them or somehow have power over them it it, it it's the same way when police now today, they try to overwhelm you, uh, take your power, take your humanity, and then put you behind bars, making you then an indentured servant. That's that's the psychology going on here. And that's the reality in a lot of ways. If they change that attitude, then the the chances are very good that they will get uh, a, a better reception, that respect that they, they crave and that they feel like has been eroded, which I still, uh, I, I believe it's mostly on them because they have taken this military attitude us and them rather than i'm part of this community if you do that you get better results and hopefully as time goes on and people hear this enough if those in power uh, prosecutors uh, civic leaders police officers police unions if they hear that hopefully they they will recognize that that's the road they need to take to get to where they want to go and that is uh, where they get to go home, we get to go home, and our community has a lot less angst and anxiety in it.
3: Okay, so I'm going to ask you if you think this relationship, this police, what we're asking of police is fundamentally flawed, then, because I think you can't ask people to be catching bad guys and dealing with the worst, of, the worst moments of our lives, the the worst of us, and then also ask us to connect and relate to a community in which to which they do not belong right so everyone can't police their own neighborhood and and even if you police your own neighborhood you may or may not know everything about the cultures in your neighborhood i i thought this when we had some incidents with uh, people shooting dogs like you know they were like well they need more training about this and for me i guess the question becomes what do we want from police and I think maybe we fundamentally need to remake our relationship as a society with police. What do you guys think of that?
4: I mean, I think that comes back to the um point that I was thinking about proximity, right? And so and I would I would even maybe push back on that just a tad bit because I mean we we've seen videos and footages, whether it's um, um social media or whatever the case may be, where you have two very different kind of interactions with um law enforcement between our black brothers and sisters, brown brothers and sisters, and my white brothers and sisters as well, right? And so you can have someone like a uh, Sandra Bland, right, who is sim- simply just inquiring about why she's being stopped to a point where she's being detained and now she's incarcerated and she dies there, right? To a point where you have a white male who's just completely irate and literally going throwing fists at law enforcement, and he's and he somehow finds a way to be alive, right? And so, when you you talk about the idea about the sphere, right, and then also these these relationships, if folks were in who who are in law enforcement, work in our communities, lived there, they knew the people within our communities. And I know it's kind of difficult nowadays because I think technology has made so many buffers between people interact between interactions between people, but no as if they took the time to know the community in which they're serving, and I want to emphasize the word serving, because that has a different connotation than policing, right? And so if we, if they took the time to know that community, they would have a better chance of knowing who is a true threat and who may just be having a bad day, and that engagement would be very different than what it would be if you were just a total stranger.
2: You know, I, I think if you, if we can get police to buy into that that's 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 the answer but I, I don't know what it'll take to do that i really don't and i i think that's that's the one thing that that, that troubles me uh, as much as i think i have some solutions i don't know that i could get the people who would need to affect those uh those solutions to really buy in and 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 want to get that done
3: well and oh, i i i'm sorry l- let me ask you like i think there's been a lot of discussion about diversifying the ranks of policing But I they've done studies and maybe it's because they're not in a majority, but even officers of color who who are in police work, they become sort of indoctrinated into the white way of thinking. They become blue, like Jason said, you know, blue versus Mm -hmm. everybody else. And so this us versus them thing is definitely an issue, but I don't know if just diversifying changes it and I don't know if training changes it and I don't know how you empathize and want to serve people if you're also afraid of those people. I don't, I don't know. That's why I'm saying, like, what do we really want from police? Do we want policing? Do we want service? Do we want mental health help? Do we want, you know, them to catch robbers in our, you know, the grocery store? I don't know. I mean, I think there's, I think we have to really, really reshape police work, but I'm curious for you guys. Right, I'm going to give you,
2: you a minute uh, to answer that one.
4: Yeah, and I I would say it's all of the above, right? And I don't think that's uh, too far-fetched or too much to ask because the reality is that um, they have to be all that um, or at least have access to it. I'm not saying that police officers have to become trained uh, or licensed therapists in the field, but at least we have to put money towards those kind of programs. And also, I just want to say just really quick um, because I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. We have to understand that we're not talking about police officers in this in their entirety. And if you think about all the that that, that's taking place, right? I mean, yes, there are a few bad apples in every bunch, um, but they become, these incidents become much more heightened because of the magnitude of the race relations within this country. Let's not forget that, right? Because we do know that there are some phenomenal, extraordinary law enforcement agents that's out there. And I would say those are the majority. But I don't want to, make the mistake of cascading the entire law enforcement into one bucket because that's not true. Right. And I would say that, um, yes, there is this blue versus everybody else. I, I would not, dis, I would not discount that whatsoever. Um, however, I will say that what we're asking for in this segment of this show, I would argue that a majority of law enforcement agents would be willing to do that.
2: Listen, and I, I... there may
4: be few, who
2: will not? Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you're right. Um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Rideland for joining us today. And uh, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramed at com or at vorjasonl, that's j-a-s-e-n-l, at uh, com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at Jason Lee one Our show's Twitter handle is at VOR podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all the other places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We'd love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason.
4: Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.
1: A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today.
0: Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela.
1: They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us.